Welcome to Texas Tech Health Check from Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center. I am your host, Melissa Whitfield. We want you to get healthy and stay healthy with help from evidence-based advice from our physicians, healthcare providers, and researchers. As the weather warms up, you might find yourself spending more time under the sun. How you can protect yourself from skin cancer is the topic for this episode. Dr. Michelle Tarbox, Texas Tech Physicians Dermatologist, who has spoken to us before about protecting our skin during the winter months, is our guest for this episode. Dr. Tarbox explains the different types of skin cancer, what doctors look for during a screening, how you can do your own self-check, and how to protect your own skin and that of your loved ones. Dr. Tarbox, welcome back to our podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your expertise, and what you do here at the Health Sciences Center? Well, thank you so much again for having me here. My name is Dr. Michelle Tarbox. I'm an Associate Professor of Dermatology and Dermatopathology at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas. And taking care of and diagnosing skin cancers is one of the main and I think most important aspects of my job. Well, again, thanks for coming back. Can you tell us why screenings for skin cancer are so important? One of the really important things about skin cancer is that it's very, very treatable if it's detected early. And so what we want to emphasize with our patients and our general population is that even the very worst types of skin cancer, like melanoma, can be very well treated if they're detected early. And the survival percentage for a five-year survival can be 99% with early melanomas. So if you catch them early enough, then the disease can be treated in a way that doesn't impact the patient so severely. But the longer one waits to get diagnosed, the larger or the deeper the skin cancer has grown, the more serious the prognosis. Are there different kinds of skin cancer? Yes, ma'am. So skin cancer is actually the most common cancer human beings develop. And there are multiple different types of skin cancer. We start off with the most common thing, which is actinic keratoses. These are sort of juvenile delinquents of the skin. They want to grow up and be a skin cancer. They're not there yet, but they would like to grow up and be a squamous cell carcinoma. These are the most common growths people make that are along the malignant axis. After that, the most common skin cancer is basal cell carcinoma. So basal cell carcinoma is fortunately a relatively slow-growing skin cancer for most patients, and most of the time can be straightforwardly treated with regular surgery without significant morbidity or extra medications. Squamous cell carcinoma is the second most common, and it's also typically treatable with surgery, but it can be a little bit more serious prognostically. And then the third most common that we talk about is melanoma. And unfortunately, that is a skin cancer that the larger and deeper it gets, the much more serious the prognosis gets. So those are the three main flavors, if you will, of skin cancer. We kind of talk about them being like strawberry, blueberry, and chocolate. (laughs) So blueberry is basal cell because they look blue under the microscope. Strawberry is squamous cell carcinoma because they actually look pink. And then because melanoma can make pigment, we think of that as the chocolate. So unfortunately, chocolate is my least favorite of skin cancer. (laughs) Well, Other than that, what is it that you look for during the screenings? When we're doing skin cancer screenings, what we're trying to identify are any lesions that look atypical. So things that look out of the norm or things that we can't reassure ourselves are something benign. When we're examining a patient's skin in the dermatologist's office, when we're looking at each individual part, we're seeing and categorizing different spots, if you will. All of us have spots on our skin. 
but some of them are, are benign, some of them are sort of intermediate, and then some of them are malignant. And so when we're doing the skin cancer, we're looking at all of the different places on the person's skin and trying to classify them into, I recognize that, I know what it is, and it's benign, or I don't recognize that, I'm not sure what it is, we should probably check with a biopsy, or I'm positive that's a malignancy and we need to start treating it now. And so these are all the different things we look for during a skin cancer screening. Generally to patients, what I say is any spot that's new, growing, changing fast, anything that won't stay healed, like a, a wound that won't heal or a lesion that keeps developing a sore spot on top of it, that's a really big warning sign because skin cancer isn't in the business of being good skin. It's in the business of being cancer. And cancer doesn't necessarily hold together very well. So if you have a piece of skin that won't heal, a sore that just won't mend itself, that might actually be a skin cancer trying to pretend it's just a skin wound. And so with those circumstances, we definitely want to look at the lesion more carefully and get more information. So if one is doing a self-check, what else should they look for? Whenever you're doing your self-check, I say you get to know your own spots. So you get familiar with what's been there for a long time. Old photographs can be very helpful with this. If you're a very young person, like our college students, sometimes the best source of information is their mom because they have doted on and loved and memorized every inch of their baby's skin from the moment of their birth. And so a lot of times when I'm seeing young teenagers who still have their parents with them, I'll find something maybe on the back of the child. And I'll ask the parent, you know, has this been there for very long? And often the mom will say, oh, yes, that's been there since she was born. And it's cute. The dads don't always know as well, but sometimes they do. Um, but, you know, it's definitely uh, a sort of memory type of thing. And you need to develop that with your own body. So one thing I really try to teach my patients is to love and respect the body they live in and to give that time to get to know the different spots so that you know when something new shows up. Um, so your skin checks are partially to familiarize yourself with the spots you already have so that you notice if something new shows up and are otherwise to check the spots that you know are there to make sure they haven't changed in the interim. Who is more at risk to develop skin cancer and does family history have anything to do with it? The more we understand the way genetics have an interplay with the development of skin cancer, the more we're realizing that there are definite quantifiable risk factors for skin cancer. And while we don't have elegant instruments to detect all of them yet, hopefully in the future we will be able to and hopefully even address some of those causes. But there certainly are conditions that run in families that predispose them to skin cancer. Some people may have small genetic breaks or genetic changes that make certain repair enzymes less efficient, so they're not able to detect DNA damage and fix it as fast, or that make other kinds of checks and balances in our immune system and our body's control over the development of growing cells to prevent the development of, skin, of cancer of any kind. You know, that kind of balance can get disrupted sometimes if there's a gene that's not functioning properly. And so we do start to notice that skin cancer certainly can run in families, especially melanoma. Um, patients can also have other things that run in families that increase their risk of skin cancer. So patients who have genetic risk for melanoma can also have genetic risk for breast cancer and vice versa. People who have elevated risk for certain kinds of bowel cancer actually have increased risk for squamous cell carcinoma. So there's certainly familial factors. Other factors that are at play, people who have typically chronic sun exposure, people who either recreate or work outside and have a lot of hours of 
intense sun exposure can have an increased risk of developing things like squamous cell carcinoma. Basal cell carcinoma can come from sort of intermittent high-level sun exposure. But all of those um, sun exposures do elevate that risk. And then if you add family history into it, a person might have a significantly increased risk over baseline. There's a, a broad group of people who I like to tell that they, them that they are the first generation of superheroes because they have a gene mutation. And it does give them some mild superpowers. So um, our, our patients who are our beautiful redheaded patients do have have most of them a genetic change that creates that phenotype, and it's an MC1R gene mutation. So it's the melanocortin-1 gene receptor. What's really interesting about it is why it persisted, right? So it was a mutation that occurred, we think, anciently in what we now call whales around that area, and it developed a redhead phenotype, so very light skin, red hair, and freckles. And the reason that that persisted is because it brought with it the ability to detoxify cells faster. So back when that developed, spoiled food and getting poisoned from something you tried to eat was relatively common because, you know, there were no food preservation methods really. They didn't have, you know, refrigeration or anything like that. So it might be advantageous to be able to detoxify your cells faster. So this phenotype with very fair skin and, and red hair and freckles persisted in that part of the world because it wasn't quite a detriment there. If you think about the climate of like Wales and England, it's overcast, it's not quite so sunny. Um, it's probably hard to get your vitamin D from your sunlight in that part of the world versus Texas for sure. So if you have a person who's you know, got the redhead phenotype and they live in Wales or Ireland or you know, England, they do pretty well there because the sun is not so intense. They also would do very well in you know, the interrogation room with Dr. Evil because they could detoxify their cells really fast and pump out all the truth serum. So they'd make great spies. Of course, with any superpower comes a, you know, a weakness. Superman has kryptonite. For my redheaded patients, it is the sun. And the sun here in West Texas is very harsh, is kind of correct. It's a strong, it's a strong sunlight. And that can definitely have a stronger impact on people who have less pigmentation to protect them from the sun. But patients with any skin type can get skin cancer. And that's something that I always want to with all of my patients. Everybody's skin needs to be checked and maintained. Everybody's skin does have some level of risk from the sun, and we want to respect and care for all of our patients. So people of color are at risk yes, for skin cancer also. And with the awareness of skin cancer amongst people of color, there have been some standout moments. And one thing that was very impactful in my field that nobody really could have predicted was a young woman named Dianora Torres. So she's a former Miss World, very beautiful young woman, but she developed a melanoma very young and she decided to be very courageous and very public about it. And she did a lot of social media posts in English and in Spanish talking about her experience with skin cancer, how it was caught, how it needed to be treated and encouraging her fans to get their skin checked. And there was a measurable effect in the dermatology practice, we call it the Dianora Torres effect, that we started to see patients who had darker phototypes who might have erroneously been told in the past that they couldn't get skin cancer coming in and getting appropriate skin checks. And so we've you know, been very grateful to public figures who have come forward to educate their fans about that very true fact that any patient's skin can get skin cancer. And, you know, a person of color can develop skin cancer just as well as a person who has very light skin. 
it might look different. And that's something that our academy is focusing on educating all of our members on is literacy in all skin types to make sure that patients who have skin of any color can come to a board certified dermatologist and receive excellent qualified care where they have literacy with the different skin types and are able to recognize what the different lesions look like in different patients. I think most of us might think that skin cancer might develop where there's a lot of sun exposure, but what about our scalp or our feet, maybe our hands? That is great, a great point that you're making there. So any piece of our skin, you know, can have the potential to develop skin cancer. There are parts of our body that are harder to keep track of. You know, for most people, examining their scalp is very difficult, right? Examining your own scalp. And that's an area of the skin exam I'm personally passionate about. And I teach every single one of my residents that your skin exam is not complete unless you've looked at the scalp. Now, some patients don't like their scalp touched or for one or another reason wouldn't like it examined. I try to give patients um, consideration with that, but I always try to at least offer because it is very important to check the scalp. And for example, melanoma on the scalp typically has a worse prognosis than a melanoma of matched thickness on the trunk. So the stakes are actually higher on the scalp. And so the scalps are very important places to check. Of course, you can also get basal cell skin cancer, squamous cell carcinoma on the skin of the scalp as well, especially if you're a patient who has lighter hair or shorter hair or thinner hair and has had a lot of outdoor sun exposure. So we certainly see some skin cancer there. We like to talk about when we're doing our skin exams, we want to look from the top of the head to the bottom of the feet because you're absolutely right that you can also get skin cancer on parts of the foot that you don't really usually see see sun with. You know, even some patients can get skin cancer on the bottom of their foot, especially certain types of melanoma. There's one called acral lentiginous melanoma. And that's actually the kind of melanoma that killed Bob Marley. He got an acral lentiginous melanoma on his, I think his right great toe. He was a soccer player and he for a long time thought it was a bruise. And then after a while realized it wasn't and then tried to treat it the way Rastafarians tried to treat things. And I wish that he had been successful. We, would, we could have enjoyed more wonderful music from him. But that acral lentiginous melanoma occurs on the feet and also has to be specially checked for. And then you can get it also on the hands, even in the, in the groin area. Sometimes that's got some participation from strains of the human papillomavirus, but absolutely something that you can see on any part of the skin. What is the treatment for skin cancer? The treatment for skin cancer depends on the type and the stage that you're dealing with. So if you're looking at early skin cancer, like those pre-skin cancers we talked about, the juvenile delinquents, or early basal cell carcinoma, or in situ squamous cells, so very early in all of those groups, and even the earliest kind of melanoma, we can use a topical chemotherapy agent to help treat that. So there's a couple of different ones that we use. For basal and squamous cell carcinoma, we can use something called 5-fluorouracil, which is kind of a fun trick that you can play on skin cancer. So if you know the story of the Trojan horse, right, where, you know, the the soldiers kind of made this wooden horse and they all hid in it, but they were pretending, oh, this what a nice present we're giving you, but they were like hiding inside. 5-fluorouracil is like a Trojan horse for skin cancer. So it looks like a DNA base. And skin cancer is what I like to call hungry and stupid. So when you get hungry and stupid, you'll eat anything, right? So, you know, skin cancer is kind of hungry and stupid. And so it sees that nucleic acid or something that looks like one. And it goes, oh, thank you very much. Nom, nom, nom. And it takes that base into its cytoplasm to use to try to make DNA. But the trick with 5-fluorouracil is that it, ha it doesn't have soldiers living inside of it. But it does have an extra little bit on one side. So once it gets incorporated into the DNA chain, it can't 
allow anything else to bind to the other side of it. So it stops the proliferation of the DNA chain and kills the cell effectively. And so that's one way we treat basal and squamous cell carcinoma. There's another medicine that's called imiquimod that actually turns on our own immune system and gets our own immune system to fight cancer. And so that's kind of an interesting um, medication that we sometimes will also use for the pre-skin cancers, the actinic keratoses. We sometimes use it for certain superficial basal cell carcinomas or squamous cell carcinoma in situ. And we use it for melanoma in situ under certain circumstances. So those are some topical medications that we use to treat skin cancer. Now, very quickly, once you get out of the most superficial types of skin cancer, you get into the realm of probably needing surgery. Uh, when we're treating skin cancer with surgery, we usually will take a safety margin that's based on the type of skin cancer, a certain number of millimeters based off of is it basal, is it squamous, is it melanoma, do we have more features of aggressiveness here that we need to be careful about and take maybe a wider margin, or on areas like the face where we don't have loads of space to take these broad margins, we do a specialized kind of skin cancer surgery called Mohs surgery. Mohs surgery is kind of like if you think of the skin cancer like a pie, and the skin around it. So like the filling is the skin cancer. And then the normal skin around it is the pie crust. If you think about taking that whole pie out total from the skin, and then you're gonna check every single bit of the crust to make sure no filling poked through. And if you find a place where it did, you actually have a map that tells you, all right, this one place had a bit of filling poking through, a little bit of skin cancer left. So we just go back in just that place and take just a tiny bit more skin and clear that. That allows us to keep the wounds small on the face and maximizes our ability to reconstruct things in a way that preserves form and function. So those are some of the different surgeries we do. And then the biggest surgeries are wide local excisions. Those are things we do for things like melanoma. And so that might involve also sentinel lymph node biopsy. How do we prevent skin cancer? Prevention is the best medicine with skin cancer, and the good news is it's relatively straightforward to do. So you just have to have a respect for the sun. I don't want my patients to fear the sun, but I want people to respect the fact that it is powerful, that, that UV radiation is a carcinogen, and that we can protect ourselves from it. So you just have to have a sensible sun protection strategy and try to implement it as early in your life as you become aware of the fact that you should. Um, but certainly if you're a person who works with young people, if you're a parent, teaching young people also to protect their skin helps to improve their health longitudinally as well. But if you have a regular sun protection routine that you do most of the time where you'll wear sun protective clothing like hats or long sleeves, um, where you sunscreen on exposed areas and where you avoid the most direct and heavy areas of sun exposure or heavy times during the day of sun exposure, I think that you can protect yourself from accumulating the amount of sun damage that allows skin cancer to develop for most people. Now, if you're a person whose family has a lot of skin, skin cancer history, or if you're a person who's very, very light complected, doesn't have a lot of natural sun protection, then you, know, you might have to be more aggressive with your sun protection. Of course, detection early is one of the best things that we can do for treating skin cancer. So if you are a person who has to atone for sins of the past, as I personally have had to myself since I, I was a lifeguard for a while as a teenager, so you know I have a, a history of some sun exposure myself. And it's actually when I learned I wanted to become a dermatologist was because I learned about skin cancer when I was a lifeguard. But certainly you want to make sure your skin checks are occurring regularly. And then there are some vitamin supplements that can also be beneficial to slow down the development of certain types of skin cancer. 
So we have a lot of our patients who make a lot of skin cancer take a B vitamin called niacinamide. About 500 milligrams twice a day decreases how quickly squamous and basal cells tend to grow in actinic keratoses. With melanoma, of course, the most important thing is being aware of what it can look like. So we talk about the A, B, C, D, E, Fs of melanoma. And I'll go over those in a second. And then, of course, getting it checked, getting your skin checked regularly. So the, the ABCDs of melanoma, of course, are asymmetry. You want the lesion to look the same on both sides. If it doesn't, that's more worrisome. Border irregularity, if it looks like something's been kind of bitten out of the side of it or we've got one little side that's like sticking out like crazy and the other side doesn't match. C is, you know, color variegation, multiple colors, especially red, white, and blue. Great colors for a flag, not good colors for a mole. <laughs> then you think about D. So D, we talk about a couple of different things with, with the diameter. You can be born with or develop in childhood very large moles that are totally normal. But as an adult, you shouldn't get any new spots that are bigger than a pencil eraser. So if something's been around since somebody was a child and it's, you know, the size of a silver dollar, it can be absolutely fine. But if it shows up in a person who's an adult who should have stopped making new moles, then you start to pay more attention. And then E for evolution, so things that are changing over time. And then F is feeling for it feels funny, like it's itchy, it hurts, it doesn't feel right to me, you know, to the patient. And so that would all be something you'd want to bring forward to your doctor. Are there differences in sunscreen? Absolutely. So sunscreens have multiple different types and multiple different ways they protect our skin. The safest ingredients are the physical sunscreens, and they also do tend to have a pretty broad spectrum. So those include like zinc and titanium dioxide. Those are not appreciably absorbed in a way that's troublesome. And they can be formulated into different levels of sun protection based off of cosmetic elegance, waterproof capacity, and formula in terms of like the type of vehicles in lotion, cream, powder, spray. All of those things are taken into account. There are also chemical sunscreens. The chemical sunscreens can have some very nice broad sun protection as well. There is no evidence that they're dangerous. They are absorbed to a certain extent, and so people are looking into that to make sure that there is no harm to come from that. There has not been any demonstrated, but people are actively checking. So if anybody's uncomfortable right now, the safest thing to use are the physical sunscreens, so the zinc and titanium dioxide, and then, of course, any kind of physical protection, like a hat and long sleeves. One thing that I use when I go swimming, actually, I have a, a full body swimsuit. So I have a swimsuit that actually covers all the way up to my hands, all the way down to my feet. And it's actually quite comfortable. <laughs> and the cool thing about that is while you're wearing it, you don't really have to worry about reapplying all the sun you know, protection layers all the time, which is, is nice. So having sort of a 3D sun protection regimen is, is something I like to talk to my patients about. What about kids? Do they need sun protection? And how early is too early? We generally recommend that you keep very small babies out of direct sunlight. So sunscreens are generally not approved for use in very little babies. However, the physical ones are thought to be safe. So especially like zinc oxide is thought to be safe if there's a reason that you have to have a little baby out in the sunlight. But for the most part, as soon as little babies can kind of walk around, they're going to get into the sun. So you do need to be able to protect them, especially because playing outside is kind of one of the most, I think, healthy things children can do and also one of the most natural things that children do they learn about the world they learn how they move their bodies through space it's often a safer place for them to move around in than indoors so we don't want to curtail their ability to enjoy that space 
so again, you want a 3D strategy. You want to try to find shade for the children to play in because that certainly helps. There are also shade structure grants that the American Academy of Dermatology does for schools and for child care centers and things like that. If you have a child that's in a setting where there is no shade, which can be a problem in West Texas. So certainly you want to seek out shade and you want to think about exposing this, the children to the sun in the less intense parts of the day. So the middle part of the day tends to be the most intense in terms of UV radiation. But then, of course, you want to incorporate sun protective clothing. I really love it when I see little kids at the pool that have the long sleeved shirts on, the little swim shirts, because I know their little shoulders are protected and their little backs are protected. And we're not going to see like a mean lobster sunburn on that baby's back or shoulders later in the day. So I do think that the sun protective clothing is a great thing to teach children to kind of be comfortable in early. And those garments have gotten significantly more comfortable, lighter weight and more breathable. Then, of course, waterproof sunscreen that is safe for children. A lot of different companies make good products. Some of the ones that I like are the most simple ones like Vanna Cream. It's a very simple, straightforward sunscreen with very minimal ingredients, only what you need for it to do its job. So it doesn't have any fragrance or anything like that. There's no pigments to it. It's a very bare bones sunscreen, but it's very safe and non-reactive. And then, of course, you want to make sure that they're staying well hydrated and that you're reapplying the sunscreen every couple of hours or whenever they get toweled off because you're effectively removing the sunscreen when you kind of dry them off a little bit. There have been previously, and I think they're reformulating some wet skin sunscreens. There was one by Neutrogena that actually used rice powder to help the sunscreen ingredients stick to wet skin. I think they're reformulating that for the, this summer, so I'm hopeful that it will be available again. But all of those are, are good strategies. Children are challenging because they move around a lot. They don't like stopping playing. They don't like, some of them don't like getting sunscreen applied to them. One piece of advice I have for those parents is, you know, find the vehicle your child will tolerate. So some kids are absolutely fine with powders, but cannot handle a lotion. Other kids will be absolutely fine spraying the sunscreen in their own palm and like patting it, but don't like having a thick cream on. So Finding the vehicle that the child tolerates is a good idea and will decrease fighting in tantrums. <laughs> is there anything else you'd like to add? You know, the most important thing is I, I want my patients to really think about the skin as the most precious garment they'll ever own because they'll wear it their entire life. You know, and when we damage it, it can repair itself, which is magical. But there can be, of course, spots left behind from that repair. And if it's damaged from like the sun or anything that causes the development of skin cancer, they, they might need to be a little bit more aware of it. And, you know, also it is yours. It, it belongs to you. It's your body. So get to know what it looks like. Get to know what your different spots look like. You know, if you have a spot you're not sure is okay, absolutely ask your doctor about it. You know, ask your primary care doctor, ask your dermatologist, make sure that somebody who's got some experience gets some eyes on that spot so that it can, you can hopefully diagnose something that's trying to misbehave as early as possible and be reassured if it's nothing to worry about. Well, thank you again for coming on our podcast and talking to us about skin cancer and screenings. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Texas Tech Health Check. Make sure to subscribe or follow wherever you listen to podcasts so you won't miss our next episode. This information is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice. Always seek immediate medical advice from your physician or your healthcare provider for questions regarding your health or medical condition. Texas Tech Health Check is brought to you by Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center and produced by Tierra Castillo, Susana Cisneros, and me, Melissa Whitfield. <laughs>